0: Welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Humaira Dadar and I'm a reader in politics here at the Department of Political Economy. And joining me today is my colleague, Paul Sager. Uh, He's a lecturer in political theory, also here uh, in the Department of Political Economy. Today, we're doing um, basically a discussion of Francis Fukuyama's latest book, Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. The book was published in 2018. Uh, We have both now read it (laughs) and uh, we're ready to discuss it. So we'll start actually... uh, uh, Paul has been, I know you've been a long time Fukuyama watcher. Um, so, shall we just start with you kind of laying out his argument and, and where you see this book in his larger kind of um, oeuvre, sure. so to speak?
1: So I think what's interesting about Fukuyama is he has a very bad public reputation. Um, he is known as that crazy guy who wrote the end of history and supposedly claimed that you know history had was come to an end with the fall of the Berlin Wall and that liberal capitalist democracy was perfect and that couldn't be improved upon and you know history was therefore at an end. Um, and he was lampooned for this and indeed is often still lampooned for, for this view. And it's quite unfortunate because it's not what he thought mm. and it's not what he argued. Um, interestingly, I went back and actually read The End of History um, about three or four years ago and realized that it's uh, it's a much, much more interesting, much more intellectually sophisticated. And although personally, I didn't agree with the argument, not a stupid argument by any means. It's It has a certain persuasiveness. And I wrote a, a short essay uh, for the website Aeon where I defended it 25 years later. Um, so, I think the identity book here is actually a continuation of themes that Fukuyama has been thinking about for a long time. Right. So for those who, who aren't familiar with the, the argument of the end of history, hmm. it's probably worth just briefly recapping what, what Fukuyama yeah, Fu actually said there. So. When he said history would come to an end, he was using history in a very technical sense, mm-hmm. drawing on a tradition from um, the German philosopher Hegel, um, which of course was picked up in other ways by Karl Marx, um, with the idea that history, in this context, is not what we normally mean by history—causal events happening in sequence and you know, sports matches and wars and, and politics. And, and politics is normal. What what he meant, what Fukuyama meant, was in this Hegelian tradition, history with a capital H, and um, the idea that there is a, a lot progression to human societies that improve over time. Mm-hmm. Um, Hegel thought this was because of the abstract structure of the metaphysical universe, and an argument that I personally have never been able to understand. But people who do understand <laughs> it have explained it to me. Um, Marx thought it was because of the inherent uh, productive forces driving history in the, the, the mm-hmm. economic fabric of reality, meant that this was steady improvement, which would eventually, in Marx, if you lead to communism. Fukuyama replaced those views with an idea about science and enlightenment and, and scientific method being a motor of history. And so he dropped the metaphysics associated right. with Hegel and Marx. But what he suggested is that this, basically science would prove that there were better and worse ways to organize societies mm-hmm. and that liberal capitalist democracy was probably the best we were going to get. Now, he didn't think it was perfect by any means. He d- and he didn't think it would solve all the world's problems. He thought there would still be many problems. But he thought this was probably as good as we could do. Again,
0: right. Actually, I mean, so I think Hegel's influence really you can see in his previous work more yeah. in terms of a kind of a teleological thrust Absolutely. to history. And uh, the metaphysics in Hegel, I really understand it to mean really a kind of a battle of ideas. Yes. And Fukuyama takes that on. Yes. So, so his exactly. argument there is more that if we are thinking about ideas that will triumph, then liberal democracy is the best idea. Exactly. Um, and we will have variations on it. We will have we will, we have had contestations of it in the past. But what we have right now is this is the best idea out there, and. All all we now, in a sense, have to do is to wait for it to work itself out. Indeed. And to that extent, I think the criticism that he received was justified. I, I, yeah. I agree with you that, you know, he the book was more sophisticated than many mm. com- critics have, have, uh, have accepted it to be. But nevertheless, there is relying on Hegel, lent him, led him down a particular path, which actually ties him to a teleological reading of history... Which
1: is problematic. So I absolutely agree with that. But of course, the important rejoinder on Fu Kalmer's part is the book had a further subtitle. It wasn't just the end of history, which was the name of his original article. It was the end of history and the last man. Right and that's a direct reference to the thought of Nietzsche mm-hmm. and Nietzsche's worry that precisely when we would moved beyond um, metaphysical understandings of the universe basically believing that God was looking at right. us and was going to sort it all out, but what would happen is that human beings would become kind of stunted, mm-hmm. pathetic little creatures, that they would not aspire for greatness but aspire for petty competition with each other and sometimes they might find peaceful outlets for this rock climbing is Fukuyama's example which is close to my heart and I sort of simple. <laughs> <laughs> with what he's saying there, pointless endeavours that put your life at risk for no real reason other than to sort of glory over the achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he worried about um, was that with Nietzsche, the end of history could go very, very back, go, mm-hmm. go, could go very wrong. Right. That we could slide back off this. So. I, like you, am suspicious. I, I'm very doubtful that liberal democracy is the final synthesis of the best ideas that have outcompeted the worst ideas. I don't find that particularly plausible. Mm-hmm. But what I did find always very sort of haunting about Fukuyama's analysis was the idea that there's no reason to think that this is going to be stable. Right. Even if he was correct, let's grant him that he's correct, that it's the best form of society. He mm-hmm. didn't think it would necessarily last. Mm-hmm. The last man is a warning about, you know, in fact, as he says in that book, people brought up within the comforts of the bosoms of liberal democracy. If they have nothing to struggle for, mm. they will struggle against liberal democracy. Right. And a key reason for that, and this comes up in the Identity book, yes, and this is actually central to the Identity of logical
0: books, extension of that Then is, is yeah. this the
1: idea that Fukuyama is absolutely convinced that human beings are, to a large extent, driven by what he calls... Timos or Phimos, I'm not entirely mm, sure how he pronounces yeah, pronounce it. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, which, he, which he traces <laughs> I'm by. Saying thimos. Yeah, thimos, <laughs> um, by which he means the desire for recognition. Right. And again, this is partly, he's getting this from Hegel, but he's also getting it from Jean Jacques Rousseau, from Thomas yeah. Hobbes, and indeed he traces it all the way back to Plato. Yeah. And a key part of Fukuyama's moral psychology, if you like. It's there in the end of history and The Last Man, it's there in the identity book, and it's also there in his big books on the origins of political order, which are actually very, very good books. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the idea that human beings need recognition from other people. What does he mean by recognition? He means being thought well of in the eyes of peers, having status. Many people can get along with equal status but some people want more than equal status. What he calls meg- megalotimos mm. or megalodemo i am not quite sure how he wants <laughs> to pronounce it because he made that word up. Um, but but it's this idea that some, that people need to compete for status, and so that in particular economic explanations, the idea that we all just do stuff for profit or we're all just interested in maximizing u- our utility, Fukuyama thinks, and I agree with him here, are hopeless as explanations of human psychology. Well,
0: I think he's saying they go so far well, okay, yes, they go no further. That's a saying, fair way to put it. Yes. <laughs> he's saying that they yeah. do tell us something about human action and they do explain quite a lot, but then there's a lot that they don't yeah. explain. So they don't explain why somebody in his words, he says, would fall on a grin Eight, right? Indeed. Why would somebody choose to die for something, some idea that they believe in when there's no? They're letting go of that biggest utility that we have, which is our lives. Yeah, exactly. So, so he's he's a bit more nuanced, but yeah. carry on.
1: Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, and these, these are actually themes that are very interesting to me because right. I've been working for the last few years on 18th century political thought, um, which is all about this stuff. I mean, it, right. it, it, the language in the 18th century is not "timos" or time mm. it's pride. Um, and, and the modern discourse, it's recognition. So Axel Honneth, a very eminent mm. German political theorist, has done a lot of work on this. Um, so I'm very tuned in to these to these ideas, because it's what I work on. And I have to say, Fukuyama is a very good reader of mm-hmm. people like Rousseau and people like Hobbes. Mm-hmm. He's a very smart man, and he gets their theories right. Mm-hmm. And what he wants to say, I think, in this identity book is the same threat to the last man at the end of history, which is that the desire for recognition will overwhelm contentment with stability. Because even if liberal democracy, though we've seen that it perhaps doesn't do this so well, but he thought it would provide all the comforts of life very mm. straightforwardly in the early 90s. It would kind of solve the economic questions now. We now know that it hasn't. Mm. But Fukuyama, even back then, thought even if it does that, it will not solve the recognition problem it will not solve the need for people to have a recognition, if they don't get that recognition they will break things, they will smash things in, yeah. in search of that and one of the things he says in the identity book is recognition is more important than economic desires, but when you add economic failure, which I think it's fair to say, you know, the the end of history was not reached, <laughs> the, the western liberal democracies did not end up providing yeah. neat, adequate solutions to the, even the economic questions, but when you mix those failures with a, with a lack of the recognition that ordinary people feel that they're entitled to, then you're going to get a very, very, very combustible political situation.
0: Yeah, in that sense, I think this book does a very good job of, first of all, laying out for a wide reading public. So it's a very easy read. It's not yes. a complicated read. Uh, it does a good job of laying out some complex ideas for a wide reading public, makes a, kind of a intellectual history or history of political thought uh, of a particular kind available to um, to a reading public. And he does make this point quite quite clearly that uh, it's not necessarily that there's an economic disaster, but there's economic inequality. And uh, liberal democracy has not been able to address the problem of economic inequality. And that, coupled with this kind of desire for recognition or recognition of our worth is the problem that he thinks uh, we now really have to contend with. Um, so in that context, what I liked about the book, first of all, is the approachability for, and, and the kind of laying out of these complex ideas. Um, and then this kind of um, desire to take head-on a kind of a big question and make the philosophy around that available to a wider audience. I have to say that is about, <laughs> <laughs> yes. about it for me. But what sure. are the other positives so, that you can see so, in
1: this book? So for me, I, I actually find the overall narrative that he tells pretty plausible. And mm-hmm. um, so the idea that we now exist, not just with the desire for recognition, but a desire that each of us has an authentic self and an authentic identity, which may be at odds with wider society. And that society may itself be a structural mechanism of oppression, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very powerful idea in modern culture and that we need ways of satisfying a desire for authenticity which is in a way to have our identity recognised and I find it also quite plausible that various important historical movements in the past have attempted to satisfy this one of his big examples is is nationalism the rise of Mm -hmm. national identity in the 19th century another is the rise of various forms of religious identity, which he thinks are fairly, fairly pernicious ways of satisfying this that are dishonest to many of their practitioners about what is being delivered but are but are in some ways a, a real attempt to satisfy this need for recognition and this need for authenticity um, I also found his critique of left-wing identity politics fairly plausible and mm-hmm. um, that on the one hand it is completely understandable that uh, groups who have been historically discriminated against um, should desire to be recognized and acknowledged but that the ways in which that's been done at a practical level have tended to be counterproductive Mm -hmm. um so I find the overall his overall claim is identity is central yeah. to modern politics, and, and it's very Western focused, right? It's very very yeah. ang, Anglo-European, and that's not such a problem for me because that's my world. It's not a universal claim. It's about out. European European and post Enlightenment societies. Yeah. And I think his view that identity is central to the politics of these societies, and it's not going away. And it's hopeless to think identity politics, both its left wing, and he also thinks mm-hmm. you know, the rise of modern right wing yeah. identity national um mm-hmm. in all in many Anglo European countries um is you know is a deep product of this right of this need for identity and recognition but it's not going away um it so we can't just wish that oh maybe it will disappear. I think yeah. that's plausible. What I found I found very frustrating is the solutions.
0: Yeah well let's, I, well, let's come to those later uh, we'll come, come to, to
1: what you didn't So I basically. think
0: that on the question of um you know his his account of the failure of multiculturalism which as we were just talking, he doesn't actually spell it out in so many words. He doesn't say it's a failure of multiculturalism, um, but he lays the blame for the failure of a certain kind of identity politics at the uh, at the doorstep of, of left. Um, yes. And what is interesting, and there's not uh, there is certainly some... One can agree to it with him up to a point, but I think there is a real problem with thinking of it only as a left's failure, partly because the left remains undifferentiated in his thinking. Um, so this idea that, you know, it was... Um, the left that there is a version of the left that actually has been proposing what he proposes as his solution there's a version of the left that has been saying that national identity should not be racial should not be ethnic should be based on certain values uh, you can call that a republican uh, left or you can call that a socialist left but there's a version of the left that actually has been calling for precisely the solution that he says uh, he puts forward and has been critical of this uh, uh, individualization of identity, right? So there's a critique within the left, for instance, within uh, left, among left feminists of neoliberal feminism, what they call neoliberal feminism, within which the individual, um, uh, individual's capacity to success and individual successful uh, people are the emblem of um, identity of gender politics. And that's—so I think when he lays that kind of blame, there's a version of liberals who have supported that identity politics, right? So it's it's uh, it's actually—I think once we start parsing about what he calls the left, then we see that uh, the problem may actually lie— within the solution that he's proposing in terms of that focus uh, to to uh, stay with the focus on liberal democracy this is actually a primarily liberal solution that uh, each individual is then separated out and their identity is is passed through in various ways and their individual aspirations are then uh, the uh, the standard through which we we establish our identity politics that uh, I think is disingenuous on his part. He's he's, Actually, uh, framing the left in a particular way. That I understand that actually within the American politics, what he's talking about are left liberals. Uh, but it is not necessarily the left that we would ne- uh, recognize, say, in Europe. It's not necessarily the left that we would recognize um, in France. It's not the left we would recognize in Germany. And and obviously, there are elements of that that we wouldn't recognize in Britain either. So that's one. Actually, let's you yeah, yeah. want no, to get so, in on so, that. So, I actually I, I, well. I actually, I um, actually,
1: <laughs> I actually agree agree with that. I actually think there's a, there's also a big lacuna in this book, and I don't know if it's Fukuyama's deliberately left it out or he just doesn't see it this way. But I actually think that um, a huge missing part of the story is, I hate using this term, but the rise of neoliberalism mm-hmm. that. What's often labelled left-wing identity politics is much, much more indebted to the the intellectual victories of the right than is often acknowledged. What, What I mean by that is the rise of a view of the world where everything is about individual choice every individual is a sovereign consumer who just floats through the world unencumbered by structures making market choices and therefore you can be whatever you want to be Mm -hmm. and there's a discourse around and, and I find this very ironic that many of our students who themselves profess to be on the left I often find are so much more Substantially neoliberal than they realize mm-hmm. because they're not interested in structure. They're not interested in the traps imposed by economic conditions. They're not interested in the idea that certain things are constrained and far beyond your power forces that are far beyond mm-hmm. your control. They view themselves as almost detached sovereign agents who can just flip between one identity to another as a matter of choice and weirdly that's not a left-wing idea Mm -hmm. that's a deeply right-wing idea that conquered the world in the 90s and and indeed this is where Fukuyama does bear some responsibility for this because the idea that we could just transcend previous historical constraints because we reached the end of history enabled this mindset and that very oddly a, a sort of progressivist left-wing commitment to ending injustice which is very noble and to respecting the identities of all individuals equally which is very noble in itself got married up with the view of the world well we can all be whatever we want to be which we can't actually that actually there are enormous constraints on these things real deep power structures that prevent that and actually so the rise of identity is a combustible Combative people saying, "Well, I assert my identity simply in the face of yours, and I just want you to acknowledge me without thinking about the wider embeddedness of these things." Both yeah. on the left and the right, that is actually a deep product of the major economic and social shifts that happened in the nineties and two thousands.
0: Absolutely, and I think you know neoliberalism—the way I understand it, and I've written about it um, uh, in one particular article, especially I've fleshed it out. Um, I think the problem—it yes, it's a problematic term, but uh, it is useful because what it helps us do is to think about that version of liberalism, which which, uh, which cuts away from the dominant thrust. The dominant thrust in liberalism is this kind of tension between freedom and equality. Um, and neoliberalism really moves much more strongly towards freedom. Or one and particular
1: understanding of freedom. One particular
0: yeah. understanding yeah. of freedom, freedom entirely unburdened by a relationship to equality, right? So, uh, and that therefore
1: to the economy and the state, to any of these other things it just becomes this abstract idea Absolutely. you can do whatever you want
0: and then that kind of individual consumer yeah. slash citizen or citizen as consumer uh, then that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of identity politics that is really playing out particularly in the u.s and he gives us the example of university campuses etc so i think that to that extent uh, it's great. We both agree yeah. that Fukuyama is actually laying the blame uh, somewhere where it actually doesn't really belong. I, I just uh, think the, yeah.
1: The, 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 the entire left-right spectrum is, just breaks down at these points. Yeah. And, and accordingly, his attempt to kind of have a left-versus-right-wing a right-wing identity politics, it, for me, underestimates the depth of, of the complexity of the problem, really.
0: Absolutely. And I think the, the second thing for me in this book, was that when I... Uh, so, you know, it's interesting to read it as a history of, say, what m- one might call European political right. thought. Um, and, and it is one reading. It is not necessarily the most authoritative reading. It's an interesting and useful reading, but it is one reading. But also it is a very limited reading. It's a very limited reading um, because it is taking certain debates and ideas within European political theory and then attempting to explain events in other parts of the world without any reflection on how, whether, you know, these ideas really travel well or do they not, how much do they explain and how much do they not. So had his examples been only about Europe and North America, I would have bought the argument a bit more. But, you know, right from the beginning, he jumps onto to Tahrir Square in Egypt. He's talking about China. He's talking about India And there is absolutely no humility uh, in thinking about, well, actually, the problems there may not just be identity as I understand them from the American context. There might be other factors there. There might be structural inequalities. There might be, uh, you know, nationalist Politics that is not just of the kind that I see in America and that I'm responding to. There may be overlaps, but there may be huge differences as well. And there's absolutely no recognition of that throughout the book, which is a really strange lacuna for a book on mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. on identity.
1: So, so I suppose if I was going to offer oh, a partial defence of Fukuyama on this point, right, it, it would be partial because it would depend. You know, you may not agree with the the, the the premises, but I think what he would say in reply is he probably has a fairly universalist conception of human nature, which if one doesn't agree with him on them, one just disagrees with him there. Mm -hmm. But I think he would say the need for recognition, what he calls the timos, is a a human universal. And so this does translate across borders. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I totally take your point that that's probably too thin as an actual social science explanation for what's going on in these places. Yeah. We'd probably need some thicker ethnography, political science, real actual going and finding out what's happening in, for example, the Arab Spring. Simply saying, "Well, it's all about recognition." Well, yes, of course, maybe, but that in itself is a bit otiose as an explanation. And the other other, and, and this is a, I guess, it, you're completely right to point this out. um and it's something I struggle with in my own work because I'm a, I'm a historian of political thought is uh, I, I fall into this trap too Fukuyama has this kind of it's again it's the Hegel teleology type stuff you know, it's, it's all ideas that's driving the world mm. so we can go back to Rousseau and see that Rousseau invents the idea of authenticity and identity and, and then, then, and then everybody kind of, has it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> including you know, the, the market vendor in Tunisia right. you know? and of course Rousseau had some very interesting ideas but very few people have read Rousseau even fewer have understood Rousseau even fewer have had their psyche fundamentally shaped right. by Rousseau's understanding of authenticity and and this is a problem that people like me um who has a, who has a similar intellectual bent to Fukuyama that w- we tend to spread out our our political theory and just uh, jump the gap to the real world and say aha well you know as the 18th century proves this is what's going on and and this is where um uh, the, the real the limits of, of of that kind of method show up is that We should be a bit more humble, we intellectual historians, because it can't possibly be the case that, as Plato explained 2,000 years ago, that's why the Arab Spring happened. Well, uh, you know, I think
0: what is really interesting, it's an interesting research agenda that uh, if we take out Marx, who does try to bring together ideas and structures in a very kind of... Um, comprehensive way. We may disagree with his approach, but it's an ambitious approach, and that's partly why um, I think he still has a lot of traction today. But one of the problems we do have in history of political thought and intellectual history is that it's unclear, the relationship between institutions and ideas is unclear, right? So yes. is it that Rousseau thought this and then this happens? <laughs> or that Rousseau recognizes something that is happening and then talks about it in a cogent way that helps us understand right. what's happening? So so there is that tension. But to give you a more kind of concrete example of why his narrative is thin and cannot help us understand some of these ideas so he lays out this history of the um, uh, the the emergence of the self right and this is again a very European narrative there's a particular point in which human beings start thinking of themselves right. as this kind of interiorized self um, and that's where that happens. You know, at a particular time in European history, and um, and and he wants to peg the whole world yes. to that conception. Yeah. So, if I think about this within the context of Islamic political thought, there is a much more developed sense of the individual because the individual's intention is central to every act. So, there are various concepts like the concept of niyat, which is deciding. Internally, making an intention, and then if your actions don't even bear the fruit that you intended, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It is the intention which is central. Right. So this is a central concept in Islamic thought, and it's been debated and it's played out in different ways. So I'm not saying that it, you know, it only has one trajectory. But this the idea of the interiorized self, this, the the internal kind of conversation that each person has to have with herself is actually quite well established in Islamic thought much earlier. And it has a different trajectory, right? So, So not recognizing that and then using that history to then think about ideas and their life outside of Europe and North America, Fukuyama is just laying himself out to... Very easy criticisms.
1: Yeah, so I, I actually entirely agree on that point, uh, and it's something that I, I find remarkably common, actually, in um, in, in in my sort of field of intellectual history. This bizarre idea that there was a radical transformation in the 18th century in Europe, and suddenly human psychology—all of human oh, beings—yeah, oh, well, so, 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 so it's sort of incoherent because it's suddenly, right. suddenly in the 18th century, there's this massive transformation. So, well, where did it come from? How did people ever survive before? You know, are you really saying? that everybody before the 18th century was just radically different. It's amazing. Claim. Right. But then simultaneously, oh, and then it just magically trans- like went across the whole globe at the same time. I once heard a, a professor who shall remain nameless claim that, that in, in the <laughs> well, 17th century, the podcast, but, yeah, <laughs> before, before the invention of the novel in the 18th century, people didn't share their emotions yes. in the 17th century. So Thomas Hobbes, for example, was like a lobster. He had, And that's why there is no theory of shared feelings in Leviathan. And I just think this is just... Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, I, and I find that very, just wildly implausible that uh, it may have taken people time to theorize these things. It may have taken them time to work it through in various forms of human literary and artistic creativity. But I just find it vastly implausible that the, the Romans, say, didn't have their own internal struggles and their own sense of mm. personal identity. And it took Rousseau to come in along and then I just find this very odd. And, and so it, it seems to me entirely not at all surprising that you say that in Islamic political field, people have been having these ideas for years it's, it's, and, and there's a tension here between Fukuyama's sort of universalist view of human moral psychology but then the idea that at only one particular time and place at a very important aspect of what it means to be a human suddenly get invented and, and but it's yeah. not just Fukuyama this is a weird trope that, that, it, that you can find across many different that's disciplines yeah. um, about the enlightenment um, and, and that's sort of part of a wider I think uh misunderstanding of what the enlightenment was but that's probably not this is probably not the podcast <laughs> to get into that um, but no but no you know, it's i, very think that is, I mean that point. to
0: me that so, is a very interesting point because of course there is now quite a lot of historical research that is looking at the fact that the enlightenment was not that kind of a break um and also we have at least some people coming forward and thinking through the kinds of ideas that enlightenment thinkers um put forward as um uh as, as actually expressing a desire rather than actual reality, right? So when we think about the question of religion, for instance, the idea that everybody was religious okay. and equally religious, uh, and yet we have these medieval accounts of... Not just lay persons, but monks behaving badly. Oh, very right? much so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Pope's getting married and
1: Pope having illegitimate children. So, I mean, yeah. uh,
0: so this idea that you know the the medieval ages were just pervaded with this blind religiosity, yeah. and then we have the light of enlightenment <laughs> I mean, bursting yeah. forward and and illuminating truth. There is obviously we now have to kind of work through that in yeah. within Europe as well. So, I think the question is not just of outside of Europe but also within Europe, oh, that history. The entire
1: narrative that the Enlightenment was some kind of rejection of religion is is just deeply, deeply important oh. This is my personal field. So you know if you take all almost all of the major Enlightenment figures, there were very many of them were, were pious Christians. Rousseau was a strange absolutely, sort of Christian. And yeah. um, trying to read it, Emmanuel Kant was a pious Protestant. Yeah. You know, okay, David Hume was a sort, was definitely a kind of atheist. Adam Smith Maybe his religious views are very unclear. Someone like Edmund Burke, complete really. Christian to the core. You know, the, the mainstream of European thought in the 18th century is religious. Almost everybody is religious. The falling away of religion in Europe is, if anything, a 20th century phenomenon. Absolutely,
0: a much later phenomenon. imagine and,
1: and, and the harking back to, the. Uh, it's an Enlightenment pedagogy, the very aggressive atheists we see today. It's a false history. The yeah. uh, uh, you thing, know, supporting enlightenment values that atheism is an enlightenment value it's, it's just a, it's a complete misnomer and a yeah. massive oversimplification of a complex period yeah. um, uh, but, but and yes. so not
0: bringing that in I think Fukuyama does some injustice to his own, um, his own arguments but actually this is probably a good point to also then move on to the solutions Yes. and why we think his solutions are problematic so why do you think it's so, so let
1: me just recap what those solutions are one is a sort of noble aspiration that we should... We, that we need to reunite identities around a common bond mm-hmm. in particular he thinks the only locus for that will be the nation the nation state in some way but for obvious and very understandable and good reasons he doesn't want that to be a sort of blood and soil nationalism he mm-hmm. doesn't want that to be the FMO nationalism that's emerged on the right because well we know from history just how dangerous that is mm-hmm. and nobody in their right mind should be supporting that kind of politics mm-hmm. so on the one hand he wants to, to reject that but he wants to say that there can be a good kind of patriotism patriotism. that's organized around civic values that's organized around say shared political commitments to a constitution to a certain way of order to what he views as basically liberal democracy and this is where and you mentioned this before and i think you're absolutely right he never says it out loud but what he is kind of saying is that multiculturalism has failed Mm -hmm. and that different people immigrants in particular need to accept the native Now, he does values, Mm. whether they're the moral and political values. They Mm. need to get on board. They need to integrate. Mm. And therefore, people need to have a shared identity, which they can group together through. Mm. Um, I I find this problematic in all kinds of ways. One, I just don't see what the mechanism is. Even if I'm Mm. not even sure I agree that that it's true. But even if it were true, I was like, how? How Mm. do you force people to integrate Mm -hmm. I'm half French and I've seen the the enormous difficulties of a I have an uncle who says things like you know the problem with the Muslims is they won't integrate, mm-hmm. and I say, well, partly that's because people like you are so hostile. So of course they retreat back into their own mm-hmm. enclave. Of I'm sorry, I'm being a bit mean to his view there. Um, <laughs> he's not. He's not. I've made it come across. It yeah, in a he may ground. actually but but listen to this yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, he That's what I'm worrying about. But, but, um, you know, but it's more a sort of sense of and, and the, the, the state with its policy of you know the, the, you cannot wear the headscarf in schools, you cannot display religious emblems, but they don't really mean Catholics. They mean Muslims, Ooh. and the heavy-handed insist on its integration has not worked right. so on the one hand Fukuyama says oh your multiculturalism has failed well look at a state like France which is basically attempted to reject Canadian, American, British attempt to multiculturalism and said, "No, you must integrate." That hasn't worked either. Mm. So the insistence that we all rally around a common set of moral and political values—it's nice in the abstract, but I do not see what the mechanism is. Absolutely, for doing and actually, that.
0: this is where it's really interesting. That the example that he uses is the U.S. Yeah, <laughs> and and it really—he uh, starts with the U.S. as being the problem. He starts with the rise of Trump, the white kind of racist uh, uh, national that is now beginning to define America, that as the problem that he's starting this uh, this quest with, this book with, and then to end with America as the example of a state that seems to have done it generally right, right? So all his examples are, well, if we could just figure out our immigration system a bit more, if we could just make it, you know, better, easier to get people in that we want to get in, and when people come in, they are already, we screen out people. Effectively what he's saying is when when we choose people, we screen out the ones who don't agree with American values. Yeah. Uh, we just have a better immigration system that screens out those people and then they already should have English competence, English language competence, etc. So their integration should be uh, easy. And then we just structure everything around values rather than race and ethnicity. And so I agree with you. Not only is the mechanism missing, uh, but in fact, what he seems to give us as an example of a working kind of a solution it's deeply flawed that itself is the problem yeah. that we are actually working our heads through
1: that, that's absolutely right and i find some of the other suggestions of oh well we should have um, a national service that everybody can can come together and share in the common yes and, and or like, singapore, this, you like singapore you think? right <laughs> <laughs> and you know you and the right. classical <laughs> republican values of, of you know patriotism and i think but there's a reason there's those values died out and that we don't do those things anymore mm-hmm. absent the context of you know war, war basically yeah. which I don't mean, think we want that is an approximate cause um, and the, and the reason is the end of history it's mm. the victory of the western liberal democratic state <laughs> and then we gave up on doing those things we don't expect children to, to well maybe Americans expect them to sink to the flag but they certainly don't expect them to give up two years of their lives to serving in the peace corps or the army I mean they can do those things if they want but it has to be voluntary and that voluntariness is absolutely the core of what, what is but what these societies are structured around, so some of the, those kinds of solutions just seem to me absolute pipe dreams. I mean, there's just yeah. no way that's going to happen, and and I don't think it would work anyway because absent a real reason for this, you know, you know, the, the enemy is coming, then I, these things don't work.
0: Well, I mean, I can see the impulse, um, and I kind of sympathise to be to give him his due. Uh, America has been at war. America has been continuously at war for now almost 20 years, actually 20 oh years. hundred years <laughs> and some, some Yes, but yeah, active yeah, war yeah, where yeah. they have been sending soldiers. Um, and you may remember that both with the Afghanistan and the Iraq war, actually the vast majority of um, soldiers were. African-American, yep. Hispanics, and in fact, there was a scheme that you may remember of giving citizenship to Hispanic youth who signed up to fight in those wars. So so to Fukuyama's defense, he may be saying, well, we're already, he doesn't say it, which is why it is, we have to kind of pull it out, uh, and it's, yeah. it is like pulling teeth, but um, he doesn't say it, but it is the case that America has right. been at war. It is the case that part of the inequality that people have experienced are white working class young men, Hispanic men, uh, you know, African-American men going off to fight these wars. And the people who are making those decisions about those wars are not implicated. Their children don't have to go. They don't have to serve in Iraq. They don't have to serve in Afghanistan. So to that extent, a national service is an egalitarian idea within that particular context. To, first of all, propose it as a universal solution is deeply problematic. And to, second of all, to propose it without putting it in this context, without making explicit what is the inequality that it will address, uh, I think, again, he's doing himself a disservice.
1: I I think I entirely agree with that. And that's something that's really quite striking in its absence. He does mention occasionally the, the, the real... Decline of the white working class and the people mm-hmm. in rural America, and and the the opioid crisis, and this is, I think, a completely like, very heavily linked to these incredibly long-lasting wars that have bubbled away but have decimated some. Parts of American society, whilst others, the chicken hawks, as well, you know mm. they're, they're protocol people like Donald Trump, who of course was a draft dodger. But it's all about banging the table um, when he feels like you Talk let about it rock, yeah, let yeah,
0: it around, let us back around. Now. Yeah, Iran, yeah, <laughs>
1: very back and forth um, foreign mm. policy. But 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 this culture of Republican and Democrat top level politicians who've perpetrated these wars for two decades, but of course their class has not suffered mm-hmm. any of. The consequences of this. And that that area of identity and, and a sense of American betrayal um, doesn't seem to get as much of a look in. And again, it's very odd how you could point to America as a society of suc- some way successful integration when you still have the persistence of these enormous racial divides, um, which cut across the left-right spectrum in all kinds of complex ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that, that what you, you said remind me of is it's always difficult to keep perspective in, in the modern moment. There's, there's many things that are wrong in our politics mm. at the moment. There's all kinds of reasons to be deeply worried about the future trajectory of the world. Um, the, the climate crisis, the instability of the Middle East are just two obvious ones right now. But I do always wonder if we need to keep things in perspective. The, the identity crisis that elected Donald Trump, who I think at least we certainly agree, is a deeply unfit to be president, Mm -hmm. is is bad. And there are all kinds of things to be worried about. But if you think about the state of America in the 1950s and 60s for, for example, blacks in the South Mm -hmm. or people who had no means to economic subsistence and security – the situation of many women in this time. Mm. America was an appalling place for these people in the 1960s, and it's still, in many ways, not a good place for some members of these demographics. But we must, I think, resist the idea, um, and I don't think Fukuyama necessarily falls into this, but but he could have done a bit more to make sure he doesn't fall into it, that we're in terminal decline and the end is nigh. Um, That the identity politics of today isn't going away, as he says. But we should also remember that it has brought a lot of progress, Mm -hmm. that that there have been improvements, and we can lose those, we can slide back down. Um, But there is a sense in which I feel that that by fixating on on a particularly idealized version of America, he paradoxically both underestimates and overestimates how bad things can be. Um, but that's not just him. I think this is a, a symptom mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. how complicated the problem is that we all are trying to wrestle with and just just how many things are in play and how, how difficult it is. So I, I was more pre- well-predisposed to the book than you were overall, <laughs> which is strange because we seem to actually agree on a lot of what we yeah. find frustrating about it. So have you um, have
0: you changed your mind now? I, I don't think I've have changed... Have you shifted uh, across, uh, across the spectrum a bit? Um,
1: I, in a way, I, I guess possibly possibly You've helped me bring into focus some of the things that were in my subconscious about what I was dissatisfied with it. Mm-hmm. But those don't for me outweigh the value of. I think it was worth him writing it. Right. Um, I was worried that it was going to be a polemic against left wing identity politics on on the American university campuses, which so much of what's written about identity is. And it's not that it has things to say about that, but it's not bogged down in mm-hmm. that. Um, it tries to talk talk about something bigger. It tries to talk about things I think are real and it does them in a way which is has a light touch but but deals with serious ideas. It, it's flawed, but it's a short book. No, I haven't written a book which is unflawed. Um, I'm not sure anybody has. Um, yeah. So I, I think it was worthwhile reading. I think it would be worth other people reading. Um, and and I, I'm certainly glad that I took I took you know a couple of days to work my way through it. Um,
0: yeah, no, no. I would say, I mean, I'm uh, the one thing that I really do appreciate is the fact that he made this attempt. Too many of us are. Um, think that we have some kind of an idea about how to go about addressing some of these problems and especially in political theory and philosophy we don't really put ourselves out in the public eye in that sense right so we don't really make that effort to lay ourselves open to these kinds of questions and, uh, and claims beyond conferences where it's a conversation or amongst mostly the converted or or at least people who are familiar with some of this language. So, so in that sense, it is a brave thing to do. Um, as I said, I find it a very frustrating book. So I, I actually picked it up with a lot of enthusiasm. Uh-huh. Uh, but I found it. Uh, I found the first half more interesting, just because he does a good job of bringing to focus some deep-running ideas and their implications uh, within Europe and North America, but. I found the second half
1: quite frustrating Yeah, I, 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 I wonder also if the, the, I often f- feel even just in the reified ivory tower of the academy but it, when I venture into doing some more public facing stuff as well, there is always this pressure you, know, you do the diagnosis and then you have to provide a solution every book's final <laughs> chapter has it and here's how you fix it and of course he's, he's done that and that's probably partly a demand of the publishers and partly because he has some ideas and, and I suppose really one of the frustrations is well there is no one or small group of solutions, these problems are incredibly difficult Mm. and certainly a pithy you know 20 page large print small small book chapter isn't going to solve these problems and again like you know, i think it's a brave thing to put yourself out there and as someone who often feels just overwhelmed by how complex these questions are and, and just really struggles and and and, and it, you know and, and we all get things wrong and to be brave enough to just get it wrong in the public eye because you're trying is is, is i think is very commendable um so overall um yeah, I, Uh, I'm I'm glad I read it so am I and I'm glad we had this
0: conversation (laughs) yeah I thought it was
1: fantastic so thank you very much for having me on
0: thank you